So this evening I'd like to talk about compassionate presence, the relationship between the heart and awareness. This is a quote from Nisargadatta Maharaj, wonderful Indian teacher. At the end of a long passage, he says, Love says I am everything. Wisdom tells me I am nothing. Between the two, my life flows. Now, you, most of you probably heard that before, but the depth of that is very profound. Love tells me I am everything. Not separate, not different. Connected, intimate with all things. Wisdom, clarity, knowing, seeing, insight, tells me I am nothing. That this mind body uh, is empty of any separate self-existence. And between the two, my life flows, that we hold both realities, dualities within us. And at times we can feel a sense of real uh, emptiness, clarity, nothingness, that we just see the whole show coming and going as a as a kind of a dance, a display, a movie in awareness. We look, we look back at our memories and our past and we see they're just this waterfall of movies that we, and, and selves that we seemingly lived in and took birth in. You know? It's a bit like when we go through old boxes in, in a house when we're moving and it's like these lives. We see the journals and photographs and books that we read and things that we cherished that are now like, oh, why did I ever care about that? You know, piece of junk. And now it goes into the yard sale. And at times we feel intimately expanded, connected, where it's almost painful to feel the connection and the vulnerability and the love and the expansiveness. Sometimes it feels like the heart might break with its kind of explosion of love for, you know, it could be a lizard or a flower or someone in the dining room who looks tender. And we oscillate between these two and many other things. One of my favorite lines from... uh, the sixth Zen patriarch, who is a wonderful Chan master from China, who wrote, do not say that wisdom and kindness, awareness and kindness are separate. They are not different. Awareness is the foundation of kindness. Kindness is the expression of awareness. Awareness is the foundation of kindness. Kindness is the expression of awareness. So that's also another way of looking at and summarizing what we do. Out of this careful, steady, persistent, patient, moment-to-moment mindful awareness, we see how that forms the basis for self-awareness, for knowing ourselves, for knowing another, for being the building block of empathy, of, of getting where someone's at, because we know our own human vulnerability and we see that in others. So it's, a, it's, the, it's the fuel for empathy. It's the fuel 
for understanding, it's the, it's the fuel for compassion. So I have a colleague uh, in Toronto who has been working as a psychiatrist in oncology for 25 years. And um, uh, from time to time shares stories of her work with different patients, which are very, very moving. And um, she was telling me recently of uh, tending to a very, very dear friend of hers who uh, she'd worked with in the hospital for many years who was dying. She was in the palliative care ward and she would go and see her on a few floors down from where her office was in the hospital. And she'd go see her as much as she, as she could in the last uh, months and weeks and days of her life. And uh, as often happens in the, the last days, um, people are too weak to, to feed themselves. They, they can't actually swallow, and so they have to chew on ice. And so she's feeding her ice in a very tender way, reminding her of a time when she was uh, with another patient who was um, uh, second violinist for the Toronto Symphony, very talented musician, and who was also in the similar life stage, last few days of uh, her life. And she was also, she wanted to uh, wanted hydration, wanted ice cubes, but she was too, she'd lost that dexterity in her hands. She couldn't pick up the ice and put it in her mouth. And here's this brilliant violinist who had the most dexterity one could imagine in this phase of life, having to let go of even that. So my friend's feeding her um, these ice cubes. And with some tears in her eyes, for, for her friend's um, you know, last days, really, more perhaps tears for her own loss. And her, her friend who's dying, you know, as, as often happens, is just looking at her with this beautiful, radiant expression, like, don't worry, it's going to be okay. And often the one who's sick or dying becomes the one who takes care of those who are supposedly the caregivers, right? because sometimes in those, those, those last phases of life, there seems to be for many, not all, but some greater access to this understanding. Wisdom tells me I am nothing. Love tells me I am everything. There seems to be a loosening of the constriction of that self-centered egoic contraction, and there's a spaciousness, there's, there's, there's presence, and that presence is filled with love. <clears throat> I was once working with a student who I still work with, and she was exploring uh, emptiness in her own meditation practice, this sense of um, the sense of nobody home, of um, seeing through the, 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 the construction of self, of identity, of selfing of the egoic process and she said it's but it's, it's just, and she was really enjoying that very fine exploration and she said but it's very cool in here it feels very uh, cold this emptiness which emptiness can have a flavor of, of coolness yeah. and I said 
just keep looking. There's more to be explored. If, if, if you think emptiness is cool, you haven't seen the full range of that experience. And so she went off and did her practice and came back and said, oh, now I see it's, 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 it's imbued with love. That, that empty quality, as the Sagadara is pointing to, is imbued with love, with, with compassion, with warmth, with, with fire. So we have these both. We have these polarities in our inner life and our outer life, and <clears throat> sometimes people make the comment, "Well, this this awareness practice is is all very well. It's presence, awareness, radiance, but it can feel cool. It can feel sometimes a little clinical. Sometimes awareness can feel cold, yeah? and I and I certainly knew that for myself in my own practice. I, Awareness practice is really the focus of my own journey for most of my meditation practice. And the, the emphasis on awareness and the emphasis on, on emptiness and awakening. That was what I was interested in. All this love stuff was not as so interesting to me. That was like, you know, the soft stuff. Like I wanted like just to wake up and get free and get away from all this suffering mess of life. Um, and I thought I could, you know, young man, kind of bust my way through to enlightenment, you know, just sit hard enough and, you know, grip my teeth and hold on for the ride. And, you know, as you do, and you're young and stupid and um, passionate. And, um, and of course, it didn't work. You know, it, it was very dry. And I did get, uh, there was a kind of a coolness and, and, a, and a harshness. And it wasn't full it was, it was what one teacher calls one-legged emptiness. Right? Without the heart, without the compassion, we need both wings of the bird, the, the, the quality of wisdom and clarity and awareness, and we need the quality of heart, of love, of compassion that suffuses, that's, that's the glue of that experience. And I think about the Buddha's realization that was a very profound exploration and investigation and illumination into the nature of reality, the nature of emptiness, the nature of freedom. And out of that clarity, out of that complete selfless release, what came out of that was the desire to help, was the desire to relieve suffering. Out of that understanding of clarity and emptiness and knowing and freedom, what comes is a responsiveness. The fullness of realization becomes uh, this expression, as, as this, the, the Zen patriarch was talking about, the, the compassion, kindness, is the expression of that awareness, is the expression of that freedom. So the Buddha spent the rest of his life walking around tirelessly, teaching, trying to work with very difficult situations and political realities, and difficult monks and nuns, people who hated him, people tried to kill him, and he kept on teaching. That was, that was, that's the movement of the heart that wants to relieve suffering, that comes out of that realization. <clears throat> so to think about where, you, where this um, resonates for you in your own practice, where you have cultivated perhaps the qualities of awareness or mindfulness, 
and the qualities of kindness or heartfulness or love, compassion, forgiveness. They're not separate, and there are many practices that cultivate them separately, but ultimately in the mature practice, they become one and the same thing. Uh, uh, presence is kind. Uh, we have a compassionate awareness, a kind attention, a loving presence. So they're imbued. So whether that attention is turned to ourselves and our own difficult, challenging, changing experience, or whether that's holding another's reality or the world's pain, we meet that with an awareness that's tender. I was just in the dining room tonight, and I was in the line behind someone who was seemingly very agitated and just the very serving of their food was, things were dropping and there was huffing and puffing and just a lot of, you know, agitation. And it was quite, it was initially, it was like unpleasant to be next. I was like, oh, wow, that's a, that's, that's painful. And I thought, oh yeah, that's really painful. Wow, that, how painful to be in that, in that reality in that moment. You know, that could have been me, you know, it could have been any of us, but it happened to be how fluff, you know, frustrated and agitated just at the simple thing of getting food. And the, and the, the heart's response to that is, is compassion. You know, it's easy to go, oh, well, look at that, I'm not a very good yogi, are they? Like they need to practice. <laughs> Glad it's not me. I'm Mr. Calm over here. <laughs> right? That's just pride. That's just arrogance. That's conceit. It's separation. It's all kinds of things, right? which we can easily do, right? which is its own form of suffering. Right? I'm suddenly better than for, for a moment <laughs> until someone comes in really calm, and then I'm suddenly worse than. You know, and that's a whole you know, painful drama. And so it's interesting just to see, and I, I see that, and I really enjoy watching that movement from the first perception can be one of a startle or, or, or it's abrasive or, it's, or it can be offensive or it can be painful. And then, then there's, if, if, if I don't buy into that, that initial knee-jerk reactivity and I just sort of settle in a bit, it's like, oh, what's it like to be in there? Oh, that's actually probably really difficult. When I see someone acting out, they're angry driving, they're mean or cold or selfish, and I put myself in that mind stream, it's like that's a painful place to be. And if we can resonate with that pain, there's more chance that we can meet it with a heartful response. It's where the awareness, so the awareness is the initial meeting ground, and then we follow that or suffuse that with kindness, with understanding. We realize that could be me, or that is me, at different times, under the different circumstances. And the, when these qualities are suffused, when, when, there's, when, there's, when there's a kindness or a softness in the awareness, then we, it allows more tolerance of difficult experience, which, which means then we can hang out with it more, which means then we can investigate and, and feel into and understand so we can uh, let go or uproot of that which is 
causing the agitation. So on a retreat some years ago, someone was reporting um, a very somewhat you know, innocuous story. She was, uh, had a yogi job in the kitchen and she was sweeping the floor. And uh, she noticed that every time she did that, she got really agitated, you know. And uh, she first had some judgments. She wanted to be like the Zen sweeping, you know. But she, got, she was getting really tight and anxious. And, and, she was, and so she just kind of hung out there with the agitation and the frustration. Like, well, what is this? It's not, it's not, there's not an external cause for this. There's something internal, something from the past that's interfacing with this experience. And then she had this memory when she was about six um, when her mother died and she was the eldest daughter and from that moment on, she was expected to, to be the one who took care of the household. She was the one who was expected to clean and to cook and to sweep and to take care of the younger ones. And from that moment on, her childhood disappeared. And so it was that being able to be present with just a very simple experience that was obviously very triggering that allowed her to really go into the pain of that, the pain of the loss of a childhood, and to hold that with some compassion so that grief and anger and frustration could work its way through. Obviously, it doesn't necessarily work its way through in one aha insight, but it can, but it can unpack a whole constellation. Yeah. So that's how we, when we bring these two qualities together, it can really help stay steady and, and start to peel these layers that we have built up around our hearts, in our psyches. So, those of you who are familiar with Buddhist teachings, which is many of you, if not most of you, um, you know that the, the frame for the Buddhist teaching is the Four Noble Truths. You know what those are, right? So the, the truth of, what's, what's the first truth? The truth that there is suffering. <laughs> not there is suffering, but there, not, the, not, not life is suffering, but there is suffering, or unsatisfactoriness, dukkha. And the second is, there is a cause. Right. And on it goes. So, um, I always find this a very interesting and sobering truth, that there is unsatisfactoriness. It's not rocket science to figure that one out, but to state that that's one, of the, one aspect of this human experience is a very important uh, statement, because it normalizes our experience, and it contextualizes it in the, place, in, in the context of there is suffering, there's a cause, there's a relief and there's a path to cessation of that. But what's important about it is it's saying, yes, this is, this is part of the human experience. And because it's part of the human experience, it's why it's so essential that we have develop a heartful response to it. It's bad enough that there is suffering. <laughs> it's bad enough that life is uncertain, that death is inevitable, that timing is uncertain, that the body ages and gets sick, that we, we lose loved ones, we get what we don't want, we, we, 
want what we don't have, right? It's a, it's a, the world's a setup for, for for you know for challenges. You know, we have these bodies that are subject to pain and chronic disease and illness. So the, the, the salve for that is both, and the healing is both the clarity that provides the, the insight and also the heartfulness that provides the capacity to hold it. Right? So there's a line that I talk a lot about in my teaching. It says, there is, um, be kind to every person that you meet because each person has been asked to carry a great burden. Be kind to every person you meet because each person has been asked to carry a great burden. Now, some of you have the kind of work where you get to scratch beneath the surface of people's lives and you see, oh, everybody has a burden. You know, if you're a therapist or a doctor or, you know, innumerable professions where you get to see behind the curtain, you see, as I do every day, there's a lot of suffering. You know, people walk in, they, you know, you look around this room, you go, people look pretty healthy, pretty happy, and, you know, obviously you know, educated and, you know, for privileged to be able to come here and, and they, look, they look pretty good. They look like, they don't like, like the suffering too much, you know, except in the question and answers and you hear about some of the dukkha, you know. But, you know, as I do, as I get to hear the, the stories beneath what's going on, the surface appearance, and there's a lot of burdens in the room. There's, I don't know anybody without some burden or several. Right? And I look at my own life and the people that I know and love and everyone has varying degrees of burdens. And so what's the response to that? The response, the wise response is kindness. If we and that again it comes out of our own practice when we understand our own experience and see our own struggle, then we then it, that it is the is the seed for empathy. Because yeah? we get what it's like for someone else. We get what it's like to be vulnerable or to be lonely, or afraid, or anxious, or whatever ailment is happening. So, the good news is that when we start to see really clearly are uh, the, the, not just the suffering, but the cause of suffering, then we have a chance to be free. Right? Mostly, uh, I think most people are very busy running away from their pain, trying to do everything they can to avoid it. You know, it's not a bad thing to do. It makes sense in a way. Try and get rid of difficulty and unpleasantness because it doesn't work. But when we start to have that perception, understanding of our predicament, the human predicament, it's even though it can seem challenging and depressing or overwhelming or fear-inducing, it's actually the the cause for um, uh, celebration. In that, it, bec- it that is becomes the turning point for transformation. So there's a great passage from uh, Catholic Archbishop from the 16th century, who uh, was making the reference to light as a metaphor for awareness, mindfulness. And he says, 
and how that relates to our, our predicament. He says, as light increases, we see ourselves to be worse than we thought. We are amazed at the, our former blindness as we see issuing forth from the depths of our heart a whole swarm of shameful feelings like filthy reptiles crawling from a hidden cave. <laughs> Might not be that bad, you know, but um, there's a little Catholic guilt overlay thing going on here. <laughs> we never could have believed that we had harbored such things and we stand aghast as we watch them gradually appear but we must neither be amazed nor disheartened. We are not worse than we were, on the contrary, we are better. While our faults diminish, the light by which we see them waxes brighter, and we are filled with horror. Bear in mind for your comfort that we only perceive our malady when the cure begins. We only perceive our malady when the cure begins. So we have this kind of interesting, you know, Dharma practice is very interesting. It's counterintuitive in that we turn towards that which is difficult. We turn towards our humanness, our transience, our vulnerability, and whatever. We turn towards our whole experience, both the beauty and the sorrow, but we don't run, we don't recoil, we don't reject that which is difficult. The meeting of that becomes the transformation of that in the attitude in which we approach it. This is from Viktor Frankl, who knew a lot about dealing with human suffering, survivor of concentration camps and whatnot. And he said, when we can no longer change the situation, we are challenged to change ourselves. When we can no longer change the situation, we are challenged to change ourselves. So this came up in the, in the question in the group a couple of days ago. Uh, Lily asked a question about um, you know, the, 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 the place of acceptance versus action. You know, it's a common question. When do you just sit with something and when do you respond and act? And there's no clear guideline to that, but it's, it, there's a middle way. We both be present as things, we accept things, and we also take wise action and respond skillfully when appropriate. Right? And that, that action might be non-action right? or it might be very, very forceful action. You know? So... Um, So our practice is informing us to both know what's happening, so we use that, that, that awareness to illuminate what's happening, to illuminate how we're relating to things. Right? So if you think about your own burden, whatever your burden is, or burdens, right? and you think about your relationship to it, how do you hold it? Do you hold it with love? Do you hold it with tenderness? You know, the, your feelings of deficiency or shame or loneliness or abandonment or anxiety or you know, your physical challenges, your aging process. Right? How do you hold that? Do you hold it in, 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 in comparison to how you might hold a friend's pain or a child's distress? How do you hold your own? Right? This is the one of the the invitations of the practice to look at how we are with our experience and to see if we can find a place of meeting that, meeting ourselves with care, with the same care that we might meet our loved ones, or our partner, or our children. 
seems to be much harder to turn it here, doesn't it? For most of us, not all of us. You know, and there's this interesting myth in life and especially in the spiritual world where, you know, you start meditating and, you know, doing all this practice and, and suddenly your life will get better and better. You like get on this staircase, this elevator to nirvana, you know, and then you disappear into the clouds. <laughs> I haven't seen that yet. <laughs> you know, definitely the practice supports greater well-being, peace, happiness, clarity, <coughs> disentanglement from neurosis, and all of that, for sure. You know, a lot of inner freedom. And doesn't mean life stops just because you're f- developing greater resilience and capacity. <laughs> you know, like pain and loss and injuries and you know, challenges in work and, and family and you know, grieve, grieving and right? life is just, you know, it actually gets harder and, and the circumstances often get harder as we age around security and losing loved ones and dealing with the ailing, aching body and whatnot. But hopefully our resilience, our our practice, our awareness, our kindness grows to meet those. So one of the things I've had to work with in the in the last few years that I that uh, I don't recall having to deal with that much, but maybe I was just unconscious. Maybe this was one of those you know, things that the archbishop's talking about, that I was just not tracking it. I wasn't <laughs> tracking the whole filthy swarm of reptiles. Or, <laughs> <laughs> but one of the things that I've had to work with in the last few years more than, more than normal is, is a lot of anxiety. And you know, you'd think, oh, you know, Mark's a meditation teacher. He's been meditating a long time. He's probably got that anxiety thing licked, you know, just... You know, just sits up there and... <laughs> I wish. <laughs> you know, I'm human and things, you know, get to me and, and you know, there's, and sometimes the conditions are known why anxiety arises and sometimes they're not. And, um, and some of you heard me tell this story. I was, I took myself a few years ago on a, on a writing retreat up in the middle of nowhere in, in, in B.C., and uh, into a, in a remote cabin, I thought I should lock myself in and I'll finally get some writing done. <laughs> and I went up there and it was um, very isolated and the isolation was very triggering for some material that I hadn't really processed. And so a lot of trauma came up around isolation and loneliness and emptiness and a negative kind of emptiness. And it was very anxiety-provoking. And it triggered these deep layers that were really challenging to be with. And uh, so I, I threw in the towel with the writing. I came home, find a you know, more, more supportive environment to work with it. And, um, and it didn't go away, you know. And I meditated and did all my usual tricks. And, you know, and, uh, you know even though I'm in the business of telling people not to get rid of things, you know, I wanted to get rid of it because, you know, who wants, to, who wants to be with anxiety? It's, challenging. And um, you know, it lasted for a long time, lasted for many months. And I really had to learn to surrender. I had to learn to be comfortable with the fact that the anxiety might be here till I die. 
and to find that place of ease with whether that be true or not. And it was a great lesson in, in the, 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 uh, the hills and valleys of practice. You know, we develop these skills and qualities and capacities, and then we don't know what's going to hit us. We don't know whether our partner's going to leave or die or you know, who knows what may happen. We get sued or we get into a serious bike accident, as many of my friends have done, or you know, something. So to um, learn how to meet our experience moment to moment with this kind attention is, I would say, one of the greatest things that supports this journey in life. And it requires what I call the turning. And I wrote a poem about it some years ago. And it's a poem about this process of shifting from the recoiling to bring that presence towards the difficult with a kindness and a a care. It's called duty. Your only duty is not to run from here, from this. Even if the hold of loss burns deep in your belly and on waking you feel the dread of walking into the day stripped bare. You could pretend, try putting, a fa- try putting on a face other than your own, but that's a game that's never worked and burns a deeper hole inside the pocket of longing, making the shell you've chosen to live in even more hollow. But there are times when there's no choice but to surrender, to turn towards your loneliness and the empty places within you've spent a lifetime running from, and you embrace them with delicate hands of love, the way the evening fog envelops the solitary tree, without flinching, pressing into and loving every gnarled crevice, every twisted branch, even the forgotten needles fall into the ground. This is the first step that begins the slow journey of completeness, keeps inviting you deeper into the roots of yourself, claiming your place that has been waiting, that is always right here. So to reflect for yourself, uh, where is it you turn away and where can you turn towards? We all have our places that we turn away. Some we don't even know that we're turning away. Some we choose to turn away because it's too much or we just be coiling with aversion or fear or we just don't want to deal, we don't want to feel it, so we just numb out and we get that pint of ice cream out or the the remote or whatever our little fix of, you know, numbing is. So where is it that you, where, where would you be served to turn towards with the loving presence? What aspect of your body? Or your mind, your heart, your life struggles. Yeah. 
So Kristen Neff, who's a researcher, has written a wonderful book on self-compassion where she's done a lot of research on tracking this quality of how we turn to ourselves with this kind attention. Where usually we might turn with judgment, with personalizing, blaming. Well, you're the only one. What's your problem? Why why you? You seem to be the only one who's suffering here. So we turn with understanding this is the common human experience. We turn with kindness rather than judgment. So I like to read this story, um, kind of a silly story, but it it speaks to this. uh, It's a good example, actually, of someone who uh, has learned how to turn towards the very very human uh, challenge. In this case, this is a mom who's uh, shopping with her young daughter in the shopping trolley cart. And, um, you know, always, not always, but definitely can be a challenging experience. And uh, so she's going around the grocery store and this man is, is noticing that she's doing a really great job at, you know, dealing with her daughter's tantrums and distress. And so he, they're shopping and he bumps into her in the cookie aisle and she's doing the the little kids, you know, shouting, wanting cookies, and the mom says, no, you can't have those. And so the kid has a little tantrum, and and the woman says, uh, she says, he 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 hears her out loud, she says, now, Monica, we just have half the aisles left to go through. Don't be upset, it won't be long. And so they start shopping and continue shopping, and they get the candy aisle, and then the little girl, of course, clamors for more, for, for some candy, and um, again, the mother says, there, there, Monica, don't cry, only two more aisles to go, and you'll be checking out. And they get the checkout stand, of course, there's all the chocolate and the gum, and then the kid starts wanting the, you know, more stuff. And again, the mother says no, and she has a, so the girl has a real tantrum. Uh, and instead of getting embarrassed or angry, the mom says, Monica will be through the checkout stand in five minutes, then you can go home and we can take a nice nap. And so the, they check out, and the man uh, happens to see her in the parking lot. And in comments, he says, I couldn't help noticing how patient you were with little Monica, he began. Whereupon the mother said, what do you mean? My little girl's name is Tammy. I'm Monica. <laughs> so this is a, a you know a kind turn in the midst of the stuff, right? And you can put your own version of that, you know, whether you're a parent or whatever, you know. Um, how do we turn? So what I've learned from my own practice and, and, and working with a lot of students over these years is um, seeing what grows out of that turning. Right? When we can imbue that presence, that awareness, that clarity, that mindfulness with kindness, or with compassion, or with understanding, or with care, that we do develop a certain kind of resiliency. That we, we, we grow in our capacity to tolerate 
intensity. So in the course of my meditation journey, I've, had, I've been in very plenty of dark nights of the soul, which are more than one night, you know. <laughs> more like dark years of the soul. I'm not quite sure who came up with that rather optimistic expression. <laughs> oh, it's a night. Oh, well, I'll just take a sleeping pill and it'll be over tomorrow. <laughs> How great. <laughs> oh, life was that easy. Right? Normally these dark nights, they're, they're passages and they're, they're, they tear everything down. Um, and I've talked about my story before. I'm not going to go into it right now, but um, you know, life will strip us bare with all kinds of things that challenge our very core, our very being. And what I found with having traversed those and having you know, been in long retreats where I'm at the depths of terror and fear and uh, vulnerability and annihilation and all kinds of really yummy states... Um, and, and, done, and not being able to do anything but simply just hang out with a kind of a kind presence because there was nothing left to be with, to, to summon. And what happens is, we, just like with anything, we grow a certain muscle, we grow a certain capacity, a certain fearlessness, a certain courage, where we, can, we become unafraid of our inner life. You know? We become unafraid of terror, or fear, or dread, or despair, or hopelessness. Because we've hung out with it enough. We've, we've brought enough kind presence with it. Doesn't mean we like it. Doesn't mean it makes it go away. Doesn't mean uh, we'd prefer to be having, having a nice vacation in Hawaii. You know? But there's a certain sense of equanimity. Right? So the, the peace of the Buddha is often referred to as, as equanimity. Right, the smile that you see these guys back here. I assume no, no, we have a lady here, Kuan Yin. Um, there's a smile of equanimity, right? this imperturbability, this that the, can you know, the, the 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 teachings point to this peace beyond conditions, right? peace beyond which means to be at ease and with no matter what's happening. Right? So the practice offers this capacity. So I'd like to read this poem that's a great um, testament to this. It's kind of like a, I think of this as an enlightenment uh, song, um, which is, comes out of the, the, the dark nights, where this poet Rashani says, There is a brokenness out of which comes the unbroken, a shatteredness out of which blooms the unshatterable. There is a sorrow beyond all grief which leads to joy and a fragility out of whose depths emerges strength. There is a hollow space too vast for words through which we pass with each loss out of whose darkness we are sanctioned into being. There is a cry deeper than all sound whose serrated edges cut the heart as we break open to the place inside which is unbreakable and whole. So some of you may be thinking, well, no, that's not for me. Um, I, I don't think I'm going to 
I don't think I'm going to do that this lifetime. That's, I don't think I have that capacity. I'm too mean. <laughs> I'm too grumpy. I'm too reactive. I'm too something, you know. But it's good to remember that we all have this capacity. It's innate. Right? Someone trips over in front of you, and you, you know, that's the instinctual responsiveness. It's the, it's the, it's the kindness that arises out of awareness. There's this beautiful piece of research from, um, I forget his name, Uh, done a lot of research on bonobos, uh, chimpanzees in in North Carolina, in the research center there. And and there was a a researcher working quite intimately with one of the, um, the chimps called Washo, and um, the Washo was a, uh, uh, had lost two of her offspring when they were infants, and um, when the uh, when the keeper of this chimpanzee uh, came in and told uh, Washo that she'd also uh, lost her child, uh, she'd had a miscarriage. Um, and this particular uh, chimp was uh, one of the most developed uh, in sign language, so it had a pretty sophisticated vocabulary, um, and so was able to un- communicate these kind of things. And um, when the chimp heard this, the response um, was that the, the chimp signed the word for cry. Chimps don't cry, they don't have tears, they don't have tear ducts like humans do. But what the chimp did is it traced the tear line on, on its face, on hearing this news of her carer's um, miscarriage. And she signed the words, please person hug. Please person hug. So this is, you know, we're hardwired to connect. We're hardwired to connect. It's, it's very deeply in our, in our evolutionary biology. And so we can we can call this forth in our life, in our practice, in our meditation, and particularly starting with ourselves, particularly learning and looking at where we turn away. So just to take a moment to think about uh, what get what gets in the way for you of doing that? Is it some view, some judgment, some fear, some not wanting to go into the difficult, some feeling like you won't be able to cope? Often we avoid pain because we feel like we're going to be overwhelmed. So I want to close with a story that expresses this idea of... Um, the, the union of awareness and compassion, how we need that quality of presence in which the kindness is, is kind of drafts on. So this is a story um, about a laundromat. And um, I found this particularly touching. 
And when I, when I, I notice that stories that I'm drawn to are the really simple ones, not these sort of grand acts of, you know, saving people's lives, which is a great thing too, but just the simple showing up as a, as a present human and, and just what that does when, it, when you show up with a, with a kind presence. So the story basically is um, this woman goes to the laundromat uh, regularly and she notices this old woman who is there uh, every day, same time, and she does her laundry and then she uh, stays in the laundromat for a long time and she, she mumbles. She's sort of doing some kind of, she's talking to herself. And people have gotten a little freaked out by her, her what seems like odd behavior, so they give her a lot of space. And uh, one day this person goes and sits next to her um, and, hears, and, and realizes that she's actually say, saying prayers and doing some kind of chant. And um, so, uh, you know, over time they start to get to know each other. And the, the old woman doesn't actually say anything, but the, this woman sort of befriends her and just sits with her, sits with her as she's uh, saying her prayers. And, um, and then one day, the, uh, uh, the old lady stopped coming into the laundromat. And by that time, uh, there'd been a kind of an affection grown uh, between them. Uh, even though there was no words spoken. And, uh, and then another day she was in the laundromat and somebody came in, was clearly looking for somebody. And uh, so this woman approached her and gave her a card <clears throat> that was written from the old lady that she'd been sitting with. And um, the note, if I can figure out my notes... Just like this. My dear companion and friend, in the beginning when I came to this place, I came in sorrow. I sat and remembered my boy and prayed. People cast glances my way and acted as if I was somehow a bit crazy. I sat in the same place and talked with my son and prayed that he would know I loved him still and was proud to be his mom. Then one day you walked in and sat beside me. As time went by, you continued to come, and my prayers became your prayers. I wondered how you could understand an old fool like me, let alone decipher what I was saying. Somehow you understood. You asked me for nothing and gave me something I will carry with me till I leave this earth. You gave me acceptance, respect, and treated me with a gentle regard for the person I was. What you have not realized was that coming here became a time I truly looked forward to. I looked forward to meeting you dear lady, and never even knew your name. I'm going now to meet my son very soon, and I wanted to write this while my mind was clear and made sure that Alice, my daughter, would carry out my wishes. Your daughter, your presence and acceptance of what seemed like oddities meant so much to me. No one has ever been so kind without expecting something in return. I was always happy to give, but you gave me a gift that is priceless, the gift of acceptance and time spent with an old lady that everyone decided was sick, was sick. I will forever be in your debt, and you will forever be in my heart. So the reason that the um, the the woman would go to the laundromat to pray 
was because that's where she used to do the laundry for her son who died in the Vietnam War, and this and that's where she would go to remember him. So I just find that story very touching that you know that when we have that kind of awareness we have we're more likely to have the the sensitivity to what's going on around us yeah? to listen to show up and sometimes it, it isn't it's a very simple act it's, it's our very presence that's actually uh, enough yeah? a kind presence Just like, you know, if you think about the times that you've been in distress and you've needed someone to be with you, you didn't need them to problem solve with you, you didn't need their advice, you didn't need them to fix you, you just needed them to hold space, a kind presence. And so that's what we do here in our practice. We learn how to do that with ourselves. And as we leave the retreat on Friday, we learn how to extend that to others in our work, with our colleagues, with our clients and patients and with our family and loved ones and strangers. It's a great gift. And it's that capacity that allows us to be intimate with our experience and it can transform the very suffering that allows us to be more free. So let's sit together a little. beings everywhere live with a kind and loving heart. May all beings everywhere live with an awake, loving presence. So thanks for your attention. So we'll have some Walking, and then we'll sit, and maybe we'll do some uh, chanting this evening. We'll do some chanting of a compassion mantra, which will help kind of evoke this quality and move it a little.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.